Good morning, church. My name is John Ross. I'm the assistant pastor here. I have the pleasure of preaching this morning. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 26. As you do so, I want to tell you that, you know, many of you know that we're working our way through our mission statement over a three-year period. We're taking it six months at a time, one section at a time. Our lead pastor, Bert, has been preaching through a series on the newness of life we find in Jesus, because we're in the section of our mission statement where we're talking about living the gospel. So there will be Sundays throughout the next six months when Bert is not preaching, and so the other uh, elders who will be preaching when Bert is not preaching have decided to do another series. So rather than just kind of have random sermons over the next six months, it's going to be a theme to that, and that is the theme of church life. How do we live together as a church body? And each of the sermons will be from 1 Corinthians, and I have the privilege of beginning this series, uh, starting with chapter 12. Now, as you might realize, chapter 12 is not the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and uh, that's part of what we're doing. It's hard to do sequential uh, stuff when everybody's sporadically preaching here and there. So we'll do it one idea at a time in 1 Corinthians. So let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he 
chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's our passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you and I praise you for the body of Christ here at Crawford Avenue, for the gifts that you have blessed each one of us with. And I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, we would see your goodness and grace towards us in giving us varieties of gifts that we might work together for the common good. Lord, you have assigned each gift to each one of us. And I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, that we would be encouraged to employ those gifts in service to one another and to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the church in Corinth was experiencing division. They experienced that on a number of levels, and there was no small amount of confusion about their newfound faith in Jesus. Corinth was a largely Gentile or pagan populace. They had learned a lot of culturally acceptable morals, which had to be uprooted and reevaluated in the light of Christ and of his gospel. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to help them do just that, to discern what is truly wise, what is truly pleasing to God. Much of the disunity amongst them involved petty quarreling between Christians, not fake Christians, real Christians, true believers, who simply had not matured beyond their pettiness. Some examples from Corinthians we see, some will say, well, I follow Apollos, and somebody else will say, well, I follow Paul. What does it matter, says Paul? Is Christ divided? The answer, of course, is no. Another example, some proclaimed to be wise and they exalted themselves above others, but Paul puts them in their place and says, listen, I don't know who you're kidding, but when you came to Jesus, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish, talking about that church, (laughs) God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. By the time we get to chapter 12, Paul is ready to tackle a really big issue within the church, and that is the issue of spiritual gifts. Some believers were petty about their gifting, while others felt small and unimportant because their gifts weren't flashy or awe-inspiring like speaking in tongues or healing people. 
So using the human body as a lengthy analogy to talk about the church, Paul teaches the church at Corinth and the church at Crawford Avenue this wonderful truth. You were given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. You, each one of you, were given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. And I want to examine this text in three parts today. First, many gifts, one giver. Many gifts, one giver. Second, many parts, one body. And third, many strengths, one love. So first, many gifts, one giver. Here in the opening lines of our passage, Paul begins by setting a foundation for what he's going to talk about over the next three chapters. How should the church think about spiritual gifts? So in explaining this, Paul wants to put the gift of speaking in tongues in its proper place as he talks about these gifts. Because what had happened was the Corinthian church had exalted speaking in tongues to the highest level. They were exalting that gift above other gifts. But Paul wants to help the church to understand that every Christian is given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. So he begins by encouraging the church not to be led astray. And how might they be led astray? Well, Paul reminds them of their recent pagan past. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Paul reminds them, you've been led astray before. You saw something flashy. You saw something that looked really impressive, and you thought it was real. The church at Corinth was surrounded by paganism, by idol worship. It was commonplace for devotees of certain gods to have religious or ecstatic experiences that on the surface were really flashy and really impressive. One example that is well known in history is the oracle at Delphi, not far from Corinth. History records that a woman there would speak in nonsensical, ecstatic utterances, and then for a fee, the priests of Apollo would translate the message from their God to the payee. Paul is saying, don't confuse speaking in tongues with this pagan practice. The pagan oracles were were impressive. They were seemingly spiritual, but such religious experiences, no matter how impressive, were not to be trusted where they didn't promote the lordship of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Moreover, when you look at the list of gifts that Paul gives here between verses 8 and 10, he intentionally puts speaking in tongues as last, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. Why does he do this? Because speaking in tongues was one of the least helpful in contributing to the wholeness of the body of Christ. It was all inspiring but that didn't make it the most important. 
Things like wisdom and knowledge, which are not flashy or grandiose, are actually listed first. Even the miraculous gift of healing comes before tongues because when you heal somebody else, another person is benefiting from what you're doing. Paul uses this as a basis to go on as he talks about speaking in tongues and gathered worship in 1 Corinthians 14. But we can sympathize with the Corinthians, right? I mean, this was a truly miraculous gift and sign from the Lord. To hear somebody speaking in tongues would have been impressive, would have felt super spiritual. And you could say it directly related to the culture around them. I can hear the Corinthian church members now. Paul, you know, we need to be more culturally relevant. What we need are more people speaking in tongues. And the people who are speaking in tongues, we need to make sure that they know that they're welcomed here. You know, everybody's really into oracles these days. What's really going to connect with folks is speaking in tongues. Now, as wonderful as a sign as it was, and truly God-given, Paul puts it on the lowest level. He also warns them, don't be led astray again. You were given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. And should any gift not advance the lordship of Jesus, it is to be rejected as false. So while we see the Spirit is the main actor in this passage, we also see that the gifts come from a Trinitarian giver. Look at verses 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we see the Spirit, we see the Son, we see the Father. Now how might a God who is three in one, how might our understanding of spiritual gifts be affected by that? Why would Paul use this to help point out that we serve a triune God? Well, friends, within the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are in constant community and communion with one another. And they are united as one. The same God who created mankind said, let us make man in our image. And the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He also said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Well, how do we base goodness? Don't we base goodness on God himself? It is not good for man to be alone because man looks more like a Trinitarian God when he is in community with one another. If you want to be more godly, you will be in community with other believers. Now back to spiritual gifts. If God exists in community, operates in community, saves mankind in community, and gives spiritual gifts in community, how do you suppose his church should operate? In community. You aren't spiritually stronger in isolation. You are spiritually weaker. You were given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. And the triune God wants you to operate in community just as he is in community within the Godhead. 
This Trinitarian giver is also an intentional giver. We see this in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, and then jump down to 11. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, can you brag about something you didn't do? Can you brag about something you're not responsible for? Well, you could, but you would be foolish to do so. The Spirit is responsible for the spiritual gifts of each person, and they are to be used for the common good. Notice, too, that the Spirit doesn't just kind of throw gifts into the air like confetti or like a bouquet at a wedding and everybody's trying to grab for the same gift. No, they are assigned, right? We see this. He apportions to each one individually as he wills. You get the gift of discernment. You get the gift of hospitality. You get the gift of wisdom. And the Lord has a plan for you and for your gifts. You were given these spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ, and God has intentionally given them to you. So having given us this instruction, which if you're taking notes, we've called many gifts, one giver. He now goes on to describe many parts, one body. And this is where he jumps into his body analogy. Read just verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So, just as a body is one body, it has many members, so is the body of Christ, Paul says. The church functions together as one unit, but it utilizes a variety of members to accomplish its purpose. It's a great analogy. A hand and an eye are very different. They have different functions. They have different perceptions. Yet they work together for the common good. While working together, they also remain distinct. A hand is no less a hand when it rubs an eye, right? They are distinct from each other and yet working together. That's the basic concept. Now, Let's examine it further. This one body is Christ's body. Verse 12 ends by saying, he's given the analogy, members and body. He says, so it is with Christ. Now that's interesting. Because you'd expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. He doesn't say that. He says, so it is with Christ. Now stay with me a minute. I want to go just a little deep. In the Gospels, the book of Ephesians, the book of Revelation, in Genesis, we see that the church and the bride are meant to be a reflection of Christ and his church. Man and his wife are to be the reflection of uh, Christ and the bride, his church. So in reference to marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound, 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Now we're told that when Adam and Eve came together, they were one flesh. They were joined together in a spiritual sense. Friends, we are, as the church, the bride of Christ. And in a spiritual sense, we are one with him. The church is the body of Christ. So much so that Paul says, so it is with Christ, and then talks about the church body. Don't get me wrong, the church is not like Voltron or Power Rangers. You know, sing a hymn and Fred plays a sweet lick on the sax and then we all shout, Baptists assemble and all come together and somehow make Jesus together, right? That's not how that works. We're not Jesus' body in that sense. No, we are wed to Christ and he to us. There is a covenant between us that makes us one. Remember on the road to Damascus what Jesus says to Paul when he was then called Saul? Does he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ's love for his church, his nearness to her, should compel us to be a part of that community. You can't say that you love Jesus and not love his bride. They are one. Paul goes on to say that we are baptized into this body. Now, that's another interesting phrase. We're not baptized into a profession of faith. We are not baptized into an exclusively individual relationship with Jesus. We are baptized into one body, the body of Christ. So yes, we are baptized into Christ, but it is equally true that we are baptized into his body, the church. So what does that mean for us when we think about the act of baptism? As Baptists, we believe that the Bible teaches that baptism is by immersion and is for those who profess belief in Jesus Christ. It's called believer's baptism or credo-baptism. That's what we believe is necessary for it to be baptism. Now, just below that, however, we might ask, what might a baptism ideally look like when taking place? Well, because Scripture says we are baptized into the body, ideally an individual's baptism should not happen in isolation. Ideally, it should be conducted by a representative of the church and with the church present. It's a more suitable execution because it points to the greater spiritual reality. We are not baptized in isolation. We are baptized into one body. Now, there are circumstances where that can't be the case or isn't the case. We can see in Scripture, Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, that's one example. But as an ordinance given to the church and for the church, ideally the church should play a part in it. If you want to be baptized, but you don't want to join a church... Your understanding of baptism is skewed. The spiritual reality is that when you are baptized, you are baptized into his church. You were given your spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ, and you are baptized into that body to be connected to it. Which leads us to another point. This body is a connected body. The whole idea behind Paul's analogy is that a healthy body is living, active, and comprised of diverse parts working together. 
For a body to work appropriately, every part must be sufficiently connected to the whole. Now, it's not uncommon in today's culture to find somebody who is just simply unwilling to be a part of a church, not even exploring the possibility. You might hear the phrase, I don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Have you all heard that? It's pretty common. And to that I say, yes, you are absolutely correct. And I want to help you with that analogy. A Christian doesn't have to be connected to a church in the same way that a thumb doesn't have to be connected to a body. As an object, the thumb remains a thumb when severed. You see it on the ground? That's a thumb. There's no doubt. Right? Does it have life in it? Is it working according to its purpose? Is it contributing to the body? Well, the answer to all those is no. Perhaps if it has been separated long enough, you might find it decaying. Perhaps if it's never been connected at all, it is dead. Yes, technically a severed thumb is still a thumb, right? But in another sense, it's lost, and I'm going to make up a word, it's lost all its thumminess. It isn't being used for the purpose it was intended for. And who decides what the purpose of the thumb is? As we've already read, it's God himself. He has assigned to each one his task. To live out your calling, friends, you you must be connected to the body of Christ. Now, another thing you might hear folks say is, you know, I agree that we should. We should all work together as Christians. But I... John, I can't, I can't get behind all this church membership stuff. Why make public declarations or commitments to somebody else, you might ask? Well, consider you have a daughter. I've got four daughters. Consider you have a daughter who has re- reached an age where she can be married. And she brings home a young man. And through that conversation, the young man says, You know, I agree that uh, a man and a woman should be monogamous for a lifetime. But I, I, you know, I can't get behind making promises publicly or, you know, committing to formalities like paperwork or wedding ceremonies. Friends, you're going to show that young man the door. (laughs) And rightfully so. Such a person doesn't want accountability. Now, maybe that young man has been hurt before, and it might be because... The relationship he was in before was unhealthy and didn't have the right boundaries and didn't have the right kinds of commitments. But such a person doesn't want the accountability of living together. He wants freedom from responsibility. He wants the benefits of the relationship without any commitment himself. Likewise with church membership, church membership is simply a form of accountability a way to show the body that you're joining that you love them. That's why we have a church covenant. It's what we say we will do for each other as a church body. And just like we all fail in our marriages to completely hold up everything that we're trying to do, as church members, we will also fail to do so. But one of the things we do, if you are a member here, you know that when we gather together for a membership meeting, the first thing we do is read the church covenant together. And every time we do so, we're all reminded of, oh, man, I could... I could do better there. Yeah, that, nope, that one, that could, I could do that, you know. 
It reminds us of the commitment that we've made to each other. It's a process that encourages love. It's a process that should encourage connection. And churches without such requirements put their members in spiritual and emotional danger by not calling members to account to what they had agreed to. One more argument in in not being connected. Some people say they don't want to join a church because they don't want somebody else in their business. Now, if you're not a Christian, I get it, right? I believe you. Your sin will continue to be well protected in your isolation outside of a church body. You can continue to coddle that sin and nurture it until it's a full-blown catastrophe, right? That's on you. But Christian, you do remember that you surrendered to Christ, right? Do you remember that he got all the way up in your business and took your sins for you and died at the cross for those sins so that you could be freed and now you say, I don't want anybody in my business? That doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, The whole of Christianity begins with the confession that we are sinful sots that have messed everything up and we need someone else to come along and rescue us. The Christian needs other Christians in his business because each of us are fallible and prone to wander and don't we feel it? Now, a reasonable question, you might say, John, how can I be more connected? I want to be more connected. It's not happening or I don't know how. I'll just give you a really simple way to start. Show up when you can, as much as possible, and spend time with the church body. If you haven't joined already, make it a serious endeavor to pursue membership. And if it's not going to be here, I love you and encourage you to go to another church where you can be connected. Start by coming here on Sunday mornings. It's 90 minutes, once a week. If you're only here every other week, that's only 27 days out of 365. And an hour and a half is probably less time than many of us spend watching TV each week. Commit to it and be here. That's that's the first step. Then come to cohorts, which is just at 9 o'clock. You're going to double the amount of time that you spent with the church, right? Then community groups, Wednesday nights lunches, prayer teams, discipleship opportunities, serving one another, play dates with moms in the park, and on and on, right? These are ways that we can spend time with one another, and this is also how you can discern what gifts you've been given. You don't need to take a survey. I can assure you that Bert is not the pastor of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church because he filled out a survey and it said he should be. He is the pastor of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church and likewise the elders and deacons here because the church body as a whole has seen the work that each person is doing. Be a part of the church. Exercise your gifts and you'll realize what they are as you do them. Don't forget, the church also needs you, also benefits from you. A body without a hand can survive, but wouldn't it be nicer to have the hand alone? Be here for us. The church covenant and the nature of a church covenant says we'll be here for you. You be here for us. And that's the the essence of what we're doing together. You were given spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. 
There's, there are as many parts, one body, and you, dear Christian, are one of those parts, and we need you. This body is also a diverse body. Even when connected to the body, each part must understand that it is, in fact, useful to the whole when it does its part. We see verses 14 through 16. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So people within the Corinthian church, you can tell, were comparing themselves to one another. They disparaged the gifts that God had given them. And because they didn't like the gifts they had given them, or maybe somebody else's gift seemed better, they just relinquished themselves to self-pity and to jealousy. They looked at the gifts that others had and despaired. They were part of the church, genuinely, but they didn't feel like their gift was all that special. You know, many of us as children probably have at least one memory, memory of Christmas or some other holiday where you're opening gifts and you look at what you got. I'm not really sure that's what you wanted. And then you look across the room and there's your cousin and he's got the very thing that you had always wanted, right? And what comes up in our heart? It's jealousy. Friends, may we not have that kind of reaction with what the Lord has gifted us with. Remember that a spiritual gift is a gift. Gifts are given undeserved, aren't they? It is a blessing that you receive. And instead of looking across the room and being jealous of something that somebody else has. Look at what the Lord has given you and ask, Lord, how can I use this for your glory? If you know God, if you trust that he is good, if Jesus has said that he will give you good gifts when you ask the Father, why be jealous of the ways that he has blessed your brother and sister in Christ so that that brother or sister can also bless you. You know, the gifts that we each have are for the blessing of each other. And by being united, we all benefit. That's a good thing. And if you're not crazy about the way the Lord has designed you or put you together or the gifts that he has given you, remember, you are here by design. You have given the, been given the gifts that you have by God's design. And the church needs you. The church needs your gift. And if you don't believe me, believe the Bible. Paul invites us to consider what a strange monstrosity it would be if we were all just one member. We see that in 17 through 20. If the whole body were an eye, this giant eyeball, where would be the sense of hearing? Who wants just one sense? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Then who arranged the members? Who arranged the members of Crawford Avenue? But as it is, 
God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The church needs a diversity of gifts, both glamorous and non-glamorous. There is strength in this kind of diversity. There is strength in a healthy, fully functioning body where all the members are present, all the senses are clicking, and everybody is working together. There is beauty in that. Christian, you were given your spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. There are many parts to this body, and you, you contribute to the church's health. To use an earlier example, without a thumb, the body is less whole. Without a body, the thumb isn't quite what it could be. I want to read this excerpt from a small book by Mark Dever. It's called What is a Healthy Church? You might remember Mark was here in August, and he uses uh, the names of body parts to show like a little parable of two church members who don't quite understand why they need each other. Nose in hand, we're sitting in the church pew talking. The morning service, led by ear and mouth, had just ended, and hand was telling nose that he and his family had decided to look for a different church. Really? Nose responded to Han's news. Why? Oh, I don't know, Han said, looking down. He was usually slower to speak than other members of the church body. I guess because the church doesn't have what Mrs. Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for in a church? Nose asked. The tone in which he spoke these words was sympathetic. But even as he was speaking them, he knew he would dismiss Hand's answer. If the Hands couldn't see that Nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing the church body in the right direction, the body could just do without them. Hand had to think before answering. He and Mrs. Hand liked Pastor Mouth and his family. And Minister of Music Ear meant well. Well, I guess... We're looking for a place where people are more like us, Hand finally stammered. We tried spending time with the legs, but we didn't connect with them. Uh, Next, we joined the small group for all the toes, but they kept talking about socks and shoes and odors, and that didn't interest us. Nose looked at him this time with genuine dismay. Aren't you glad they're concerned with odors? Sure, sure, but it's not for us. You know, then we attended the Sunday school for all you facial features. Do you remember? We came for several Sundays a couple of months ago. It was great to have you. Thank you. But, you know, everyone just wanted to to talk and listen and smell and taste. It felt like, well, it felt like you never wanted to get to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs. Hand and I are thinking about checking out the church down the street. We hear they do a lot of clapping and hand-raising, which is closer to what we need right now. Friends, neither party in that parable understands that they need each other, that they need each other. They need a diversity of gifts working together in the same body. Now, just as there are many gifts in one giver, many parts in one body. 
we also see many strengths and one love. Just as it is possible for one Christian to be jealous of another Christian's gifting, so it is also possible for one Christian to be condescending toward another because they think their gift is superior, perhaps even self-sufficient. Like, I don't need anybody else. I've got everything that I want. We see that in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, honestly, it seems unlikely that any of us would say that directly to another Christian, especially within our church. I don't need you, right? That's really harsh. Hopefully we've matured beyond that point. But it is highly likely that we would compare our own strengths, our own spiritual gifts, with where somebody else might be weak in those gifts. How about the gifts of knowledge? Have you ever met a Christian know-it-all? If you haven't, there's this thing called the internet. Um, there's full of them. It's full of Christian know-it-alls. I don't know if you've ever been on this. Twitter, there's a lot going happening there. No? Okay. Lord have mercy. If, if your spiritual gift is knowledge, you have absolutely no right to parade it like you earned it. If you have the spiritual gift of knowledge or of wisdom, hasn't the Spirit given it to you? Hasn't he given it for the common good? Why are you elevating yourself in this? <laughs> Use your knowledge to train others. What if it's evangelism? Have you ever met somebody that likes to put other people to shame because they haven't shared the gospel enough? There are a number of ways in which we can take our good gifts and when we look at somebody else within the church, we can say, why aren't they more like this? Why don't they do more of this? You know, this church, there's only a handful of us doing this one thing. Well, if the body is diverse and each has different gifts, then maybe the handful of people doing the thing are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that's as it should be. There is not, as Scripture tells us, there's not just one member. There are many members and one body, and we are to work together for the good of each other and for the glory of God. Next, we see that this, the love that we are to have for one another is an honorable love. And this part is a little confusing, but it'll be clear in a minute. Verses 21 through 26. Let's start with actually with 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable and bestow the greater honor, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So what is, what's Paul getting at here? Some members of Christ's body aren't showy or aren't always on display. You know, the eyes and the ears, hands, things like that, they're all exposed, right? All a center of attention. Some members of the body, however, we're talking about a human body, some members of a body are concealed. And it's these parts, Paul says, are indispensable. You can't do without them. If I especially think about Paul's day, there's not as much medical advanced technology, right? You lose a hand, 
You lose an eye, you lose an ear. You go on with your life, right? Now, I, it's hard not to be crude <laughs> talking about this section, so be patient with me. I've got to dance around this a little. You can continue life without a hand or a foot or an eye, but there are some body parts and bodily functions that you cannot bypass. In fact, you need them to pass things. You need those parts. They have a higher honor because without them, you would not be functioning. What is Paul getting at? Some gifts may seem commonplace. Some seem flashy and get all the attention, speaking in tongues. But you know what? Speaking in tongues, you can do without it. Paul says there are other gifts that perhaps happen undercover, as it were, but yet you can't do without them. Be reminded, friends, much of the Christian life is not Instagram-worthy. There are many things that Christians are doing from day to day in caring for others that might not be very presentable, but they are honorable. I know that several members have done that this week. That's what Paul is getting at. These spiritual gifts are not meant to draw attention to ourselves. In fact, those gifts that are executed in quiet humility are some of the gifts the church needs the most. You might not see them. They might not be flaunted. You might not be praised for them, but the church needs them. Now, What if a church member suffers? Not many of us think about our pinky toes until we crack it on a piece of furniture or a doorway. And then what happens? The whole body reacts. Sometimes the mouth reacts and you don't want it to. Right? And the same in the body of Christ. Not every member can do everything, but... Some members are doing something, and it's right for the entire body to feel the loss. On the other hand, let's say it comes to praise. Imagine an athlete catches the winning touchdown, or a gymnast sticks the landing, or a swimmer finishes a lap in record time. Do they, do they lift up the hands of the football player to say, like, hey, this foot, these hands won the championship? No, it's the whole athlete, right? You don't lift up your feet and say, these, these feet stuck the landing and they get a gold medal around your ankles. It doesn't work like that. It's the whole body. The whole body is responsible for this being accomplished. And so the whole body rejoices. I say all that to say this and just try to make sense of what Paul is saying here. True connection True life, true flourishing in the body of Christ means that we're living together and we're rejoicing with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. I recently spent an afternoon removing large stumps from my backyard and afterward I was sore in muscles that I didn't know I had. Many of you have had a similar experience. And my entire body compensated for those muscles so that... and. And because of that, my whole body suffered together. Likewise, friends, 
in this church body, there will be people that you have never known before until you know that they are in pain. And that is the time when it is right for us to come around them, to support them, to care for them. Whether it's attending a funeral of a member you don't know, or making a meal for a new mom who just joined the church, or counseling a brother or sister who is struggling. As a body, we are to use our spiritual gifts for the wholeness of the body of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he said what they would be known for? He didn't say spiritual gifts. He didn't say potlucks or music or superior theology or heartwarming stories. Jesus said, and this is in John 13, a new commandment I give you, says our Lord, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christ has loved us with a sacrificial love. He has borne burdens for us that he didn't have to bear, but he did out of love. And as the church, that's what we're called to do. We're called to join with one another, to care for one another, to work together for the common good, and to work together for the glory of God. And it's only because of what Christ has done for us that we know what love is. We cannot out-love Christ, but as his body, the church, friends, we can certainly use the gifts that he has given us to contribute to the wholeness of his bride. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. There is no greater gift than the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask for your help that we might exalt Christ with the gifts you have given to us in the Spirit. Lord, may we exercise them together as different members of the same body to the praise of your glory and grace. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us where we have failed to do this. Give us resolve to become more like Jesus in the days ahead. Help us to love one another with a self-sacrificing love that we might rejoice with those who rejoice, that we might weep with those who weep, that when one suffers, all suffered, and that when one is honored, that all would rejoice together. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of your church. Help us, Lord, to increase in our gratitude for your church, that we might love each other better and love you more fully. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.